We say hello to everybody who is worshiping with us online. We are grateful that you're here as well. Thank you to those of you in the room. If you are worshiping with us for the first time, my name is Matt. I get to be one of the pastors here. And you came in at a really good time in our church because we right now are in a series that we do every single year. It's a series that we call simply two words, live, love. Because those are the two words in that sentence that's on the wall when you walked into this building that for us are so much more than words. Those two words are connected to a statement that is powerful and meaningful to us because for us, it's not, it's not a slogan for a brand. It's the way that we articulate the mission that we deeply believe that Jesus gave his church. That when Jesus had defeated death, he had paid for our sin on the cross and then they put him in a borrowed tomb, but you... He didn't stay there, amen, come on somebody. He came out three days later, he rose, he defeated death. Before he went back to heaven to prepare our eternal home where he is now, he gathered up the first people to follow him on a mountain and he said, I need y'all to now go into the world. And all the stuff that you've seen me do, all the things that you've heard me teach, the way that you've seen me live, the way that you've seen me love, your job until I come back is to go tell people about it. You don't huddle up by yourselves and just wait for me to come back. No, you go. You go into the streets, into the places that maybe are uncomfortable, and you go to anybody who will listen. It doesn't matter what they look like or what language they speak or what socioeconomic status or how many degrees are on their wall because the gospel is for everybody. And you know what's crazy? They did it. Like they actually listened to Jesus. They didn't just huddle up in their little group and just wait for Jesus to come back. No, they stepped into places that, that weren't comfortable and weren't easy and, and they, were, they, they got the Holy Spirit and they went into these places and they started just telling people about Jesus. And the good news for us is we get a window into what it looked like, this thing called the church, in its infancy, we get a, a picture of the church immediately in the aftermath of that moment on the mountain where these disciples do go into the world and they share the gospel and we get a picture of what the church in its infancy looked like. And it was me looking at that record and what we know was the book of Acts that stirred something in my spirit that made me long to see in my generation what I saw there. A church that was not bogged down by stuff that didn't matter. A church that was not fighting each other over the kind of music they were going to do. A church that was not consumed with any one person's agenda, but was just solely sold out for the mission that Jesus gave them. And that's how vintage was born. You look up vintage in the dictionary, representing the high quality of a pastime. That's what vintage means. And that's what we wanted to embody. That spirit, that mindset, that attitude not that we wanted to exactly mimic and mirror everything that they did, but there was a spirit that was present that made this movement go from basically nothing to just exploding within the first few weeks of the church because it was about the gospel and inspiring people to live and love like Jesus was their sole goal, and that's become our mission, and that's how we articulate it. When Jesus said, go make disciples, a disciple of Jesus is somebody who lives and loves like Jesus. Come on, amen? That's essentially, if you boil it down, to live and love like Jesus is to, if we're gonna follow Jesus, we look at his life. We look where God, God didn't send Jesus just to die for our sins. That was a huge part of it. That was a necessary part of it. We needed, we needed salvation. We needed to be forgiven. We needed redemption. But in Jesus, God led to humanity and said, that's how you do it. Right there. That's the way life is supposed to be lived. 
That's the way it's, the intimacy he had with the Father, the way he loved other people, no matter where they were from, the way he spoke truth, even when it wasn't easy. In Jesus, God looked at humanity and say, um, y'all need to do this. This is the way you're supposed to live in this life. And that's what those people did. A few years ago, we did a version called a Live Love. And you know, I said, you know how you inspire people to live in love like Jesus? Live in love like Jesus. <laughs> it's wild, isn't it? Like actually reflect him, look like him, no matter where you are, whether you're in a school, students, whether you're in your work, whether you're in your neighborhood, whether you're in Walmart and you're impatient because there's one checkout and 75 registers. Like somebody said, yes. That's right. That'll be the best amen I get all day. And when you look in the book of Acts, man, five chapters in, this little small group of people that were not anybody that you and I would pick, fishermen, tax collectors, they weren't trained, they weren't educated, they were just like us, y'all. But they were empowered by the Spirit and committed to Jesus so much that this thing is just growing and growing and growing and God is doing amazing things. And what I see in that, in those pages of that record, of that historical record of the early church, I'm still longing to see in my generation. I think over the last 15 years since we launched as a church, we've seen glimpses of it, but I think we should keep chasing it. And chasing, no, let me correct myself, not chasing it, chasing the one who can make it possible. To continue to follow after him and now this little movement that when Jesus gave them that mission, we think it was about 120 people. And then the day of Pentecost comes out, Peter preaches, and it goes from 120 to about 3,000. Then Peter and John heal a man. Remember, the guy who was 40 and never walked in his life. Peter says, get up and walk. He jumps up, does the mock the electric slide, and people start saying, what's happening? <laughs> and next thing you know, it goes from 3,000 to 5,000, and God's growing his church and amazing things are happening. And if you keep reading on into chapter five, their generosity and their unity that we've talked about over the last few weeks and God just really moving more and more people are believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's some crazy, miraculous stuff happening. It says that, that God has so anointed Peter that when his shadow hit somebody that was sick, that they'd be made well. That's what God can do. Had nothing to do with Peter, look at me. Had nothing to do with Peter, but God working in Peter. But when something like this starts happening, not everybody who's around in that community receives it well. When God really starts to move, there'll be always be a segment at least of people that get freaked out by it. And most often than not, it's the religious folk. And that's exactly who's getting freaked out when this movement that Jesus has started is working through these group of men and women now that are a part of the church. They don't, they don't know what to do with it. They are, they are so freaked out by what's happening. Maybe it's because they felt threatened that maybe their power was gonna start to diminish or maybe they felt like their influence was beginning to shift away because the influence of the church was growing because y'all people ain't changed in thousands of years. And so they, they tell them, remember that the first time they tried to squash this movement, they said, keep doing good, but leave Jesus out. Remember, they, they didn't say stop being charitable. They didn't say, say stop being generous. They didn't say stop doing all these really good deeds. They say, just leave Jesus out of it. The church cannot 
The church is not supposed to just be charitable. We are should be charitable, but we can't put food in people's belly and not offering the God that can fill their heart. And it's not an either or, it's a both and. It's a both and. Yeah, we serve people, we meet needs, but everybody's greatest need is a spiritual one. Everybody's greatest need is a spiritual one because you're gonna spend a lot more time in eternity than you do on earth. So we gotta give people Jesus. And they say, do you think we should follow you or follow God? Because we think we should follow God, not y'all. And they keep doing it and they keep doing it and they keep doing it. And this is what happens. Go into Acts chapter five. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, then the high priest rose up and he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and took them to a public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and tell the people about this life. He didn't say just go preach the gospel because this thing with Jesus is a lifestyle. Come on, somebody. It's, a, it's something that gets in every part of who you are. It's, following Jesus is not something you do on Sundays. Following Jesus is not a preset on your radio station. Following Jesus is not a t-shirt that you put on your back. It is the way that you approach your marriage, your parenting, your finances, every part of who you are. We can't have this compartmentalism Christianity anymore, people. It should consume everything that we are. Man, I should have just preached that sermon and gave an invitation and we could have went home. Verse 20, go stand in the temple court Tell the people about this life. And hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And that's what they did. And guess what they did? They brought them back in. They said, listen, y'all gotta stop this. We already told you once. Stop preaching in Jesus' name. Stop telling people about Jesus. And they tried the same trick they did a few chapters early. So they said, well, you gotta quit using Jesus' name. You gotta quit doing this. But again, they say, you, you take Jesus out of this and this whole thing falls apart. It just all falls apart. Because it's because of Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, and with Jesus, and without Jesus, we can't do anything. And church, we can never forget that. It always has to be about Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, because of Jesus. And if ever it becomes about anything else, this thing will fall apart. It will fall apart. And they say the same thing. We already told you, man. We gotta obey God, not you. We gotta do what God's calling us to do. No matter the consequence, no matter the cost, we've got to follow him and not them. And then this interesting conversation happens. Drop down to verse 33. Acts 5, verse 33. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, not Gargamel, he's from the Smurfs. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. Then he said to them, listen, men of Israel, be careful about what you do to these men. Remember that some time ago, Theotis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished and all his followers were scattered. 
So in this present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. Stop right there for a minute. He says, guys, before we get all bent out of shape and start doing crazy things and start killing people, remember, we've seen this before. This is not the first time somebody has rose up among us claiming to be something, drew a following, even a large following, but we've watched this thing come and we've watched this thing go. We've watched man after man rise up claiming to be somebody connected to God. People start believing and following him, but then that guy dies and it's only a matter of time before it fizzles out. And he says, if this work is of human origin, the same thing will happen to this group of people that happened to those, but. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. He says, if this is of human origin, it will not last. But if God is in it, you can't stop it. If God is in it, you can't stop it. You can beat them, you can kill this group of men, and more will follow. If this is of God, you will not be able to stop it. It was true then, and it's true now. If this place ever becomes about me, or a single person, or a man's agenda, if this is about just doing what we want to do, and making ourselves known, and feeling good about us, if it becomes about human desires, this church will cease to exist before long. But if, it, if we, look at me, if we stay focused on God, and it remains about him, for him, through him, because of him, I don't care what happens to the economy. I don't care what happens to culture. I don't care what changes in the society in which we live. This church will continue to do something significant for the kingdom of God. Amen. And when it's about God, it's about doing things in God's way. And that's where churches start to get tenacious. Because so much about the way we want to do things in a church becomes more about what we want than what scripture says. Most of our church experience is much more rooted in tradition or things that we like than necessarily things that scripture mandates. Because I don't know if you know this, Jesus made it very clear why the church exists. But how we go about inspiring people to live in love like Jesus, what the church looks like on a day-to-day -day practical way, if you ever notice, God says, leaves a lot of room for us to evolve in that in a way that will help us best take the gospel into the culture in which we live. Like so much of our church experience is much more rooted in tradition than scripture. Y'all okay? And look at me, it's not that tradition's bad. I grew up in it too, I love it. But sometimes we fall more in love with the tradition than the God they were supposed to be about. We like, we like how we do church more than the God who established it and what he desires for us. But there are some things that I notice all throughout the Bible that I think are necessary parts of what it means to be the church 
that we can't abandon. There's even, there's even a pattern that you see starting even in the Old Testament that bleeds into the New and that has been very evident as we've been journeying together through the book of Acts. And that pattern continues on the other side of the events that we just talked about in Acts chapter five. Drop down to verse 42. And I want you to see what they did on the other side of yet another test of their faith and their ability to move the mission forward. Because see, on the other side of the, mo- the growth movements, on the other side of the explosions, you see the, all right, what does the church do? We said all along, the reason why, look at me, the reason why this thing is moving is not because of the brilliant strategy, it's not because of what they did, it's because of who they were. They were people sold out and committed to Jesus, but who they were shaped what they valued. And what they valued shaped what they did. And this is what they did on the other side of yet another challenge. It says in verse 42, Acts chapter five, every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's like, that sounds familiar. If you've been here the last few weeks, that sounds familiar. Because you just, you just heard a pattern be repeated that has been established from the onset of the book of Acts. They met in the temple and they met from house to house. See, that's exactly what they did on the other side of Pentecost. Acts chapter two, verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple court and broke bread from house to house. Now, one of the things that was obviously priority for the first century church, the church in its infancy, was the gathering of God's people. That y'all, we are intended and we are supposed to and we need to get together. That there's something beautiful and powerful about God's people gathering together. That we live in a rhythm where frequently, intentionally, we draw in from the various places of life we come from. And with one voice, we focus on God. We lift up praise to God. We sing to God. And together we dive into his word. And we do it in the same physical space. That the gathering of God's people is something that is important to God. And I think something, look at me, necessary for us, for our spiritual maturity, for our spiritual health, for our well-being. We are not meant to just live isolated and separated from one another. Followers of Jesus, God intends for us to come together, to be together. And I know on the other side of COVID, that's been a challenge And I'm concerned because it seems like the gathering together is becoming less and less important to a lot of people. And if you're feeling, my intention right here is not in any way to create guilt. If you got conviction, you talk to the Holy Spirit. Don't get mad at me. And look, I love technology. Come on. I think it's great. I think right, it's awesome that right now there are people traveling this weekend. I know we have a school that's on fall break and people are away and we have people that your family members in Texas and other places, that's great. But we have turned this, what's supposed to be a supplement to our faith to a substitute for being together and I don't know that that's a good idea. Because it's so easy when this, when on the other side of a screen, our church experience is limited to that, it's so easy to get isolated and hide and be lonely and keep secrets and not be transparent and have the people in your life that you know what, every now and then you need a hug, even though you don't like to be touched because you're weird and you're OCD and germaphobe, I get it. 
but being physically together is important. Come on. Can I just say more importantly, I think scripture demonstrates it's important. It says they continue to meet together. It says in the temple courts and from house to house. And that's a pattern that I think you see all throughout scripture that when God's people to get together, there's a place for the large crowd and the small circle. And that both are an important part of being a part of the body of Christ. That there's the large crowds, like what we do on Sunday, and then there's those small circles where we get outside of these rows and into a space where we can see and be seen and have conversations and get to know one another and actually help each other grow and do this thing that's really difficult called life. I think Jesus modeled this for us. You know why I think everything they, I think they did in the, in the early church is because they had watched Jesus do it. Jesus He he so clearly believed in this concept of large crowds, small circles. How often in the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts that we get of Jesus' life and ministry, do you see him with a crowd of people? Look at Matthew chapter five, verses one and two. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, then he began to teach them. Go read through it. There's multiple times when Jesus has the crowd of followers together and, and, they, and he teaches and he gives them instruction. There's moments where he goes up on a mountain. There's moments where he stands in a boat and pushes off from shore because Jesus had an idea of acoustics and how the, it would echo off the water. That's legit. They didn't have speakers. I thought that was funny. Nobody laughed. That's it. He would speak to the crowds. But you know, Jesus not only stood before the crowd, he sat in circles. I think some of us get the idea that Jesus only had 12 disciples during his ministry. He didn't. There was actually a moment, Luke records it, go to Luke chapter six, where Jesus went and prayed overnight and then went down and among the crowd picked his circle. Luke chapter six, verse 12, says during those days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, known as Andrew, I mean Simon, known as Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, another James, because they weren't very creative with names back then, okay? James, the son of Alphaeus, another Simon, Judas, and the other Judas, like he picks them. He goes up on, he, he stood before the crowds and he taught and he, he saw the need of getting together as a crowd. But then he comes down one day and he says, God has called me, the Father has called me to more intentionally invest into a small circle of you so that you can be ready to do what I need you to do when I leave. And he said, I pick you, Simon, and you, Simon, and even you, Judas, Thomas, Philip, Bartholomew, and he created a circle and he sat in that circle and he invested in those guys. That, that God makes it clear, the gathering of God's people, us physically being in the same space. And I love, again, that we have people watching online, but if you're close by, find a time to get in this room. If you're far away, let us be a supplement to you being connected to another church where you physically have people in your life to love and care for you. Large crowds, small circles. And now, what 
is supposed to happen and what should happen in those crowds and in those circles, scripture gives us a little insight but doesn't give us full detail. Like when we're with the crowd, what is that supposed to be? What is it supposed to look like? When is it supposed to happen? Did you know there, look, this is gonna freak some people out in the room. There is no biblical command for us to get together on Sunday. But it's the Lord's day. Every day is the Lord's day. <laughs> and some of us, we say that, so that way we only have to act like we got some sense on Sunday and the rest of the week we live like hell. <laughs> I said it. No, every day, every day, every moment is the Lord's, right? Every day, tomorrow is the Lord's day. Tuesday, the Lord's day. Wednesday, you get what I'm saying. Every day is the Lord's day. Do you know why we worship on Sunday? It's the Sabbath. No, it's not. That was yesterday, it was sundown Friday. Like, that's not the Jewish Sabbath. And look at me, Sabbath, listen, was more about a, a rhythm of rest than a pattern for worship. God instituted the Sabbath because he said, you're human and you cannot go hard every day, seven days a week and last. I don't care how much caffeine you drink. You cannot, you have to rest. But Sabbath was about a rhythm of rest, not a pattern for worship. You know why we get together on Sunday? Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So the early church would get together on Sunday as a celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Not because it was a mandate, but that's, that's why. It's funny, man. There's so many things that we get so wrapped up in. Do you know what? Even the gathering of the crowd, and that's why, you know what, when, when we move church around sometimes and we don't have church on Sunday and people freak out, we're like, no, that, there, there's not this, this mandate that that's when it has to be. It's also not about a place. I know there's a lot of people, you walk in this and this doesn't look like a church. What's church supposed to look like? And what is your image? Is it rooted in what the Bible says or just what you went to your whole life? Because I went to that. I went to the pews and the steeple and the stained glass. It's beautiful. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying that anybody who worships in that space is wrong. But worship is about a person, not a place, and his name is Jesus. It's not about a place. That's at the heart of what Jesus was trying to say to the woman at the well, not in the well. I said in the well in the first gathering. It's the woman at the well. Talk to the woman in the well would have been a whole different weird thing. John chapter four. Remember this conversation with the Jesus with the woman at the well. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. But Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But listen, an hour is coming and is actually now here when true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That it's not about a place. It's about a person and a posture of heart. People always walk in here, and this room is labeled as auditorium. They'll say, where's the sanctuary? And you know what I say? Right, right there in you. You are the sanctuary. Because the Bible says the veil has been torn 
The temple is not where God is contained anymore. That you yourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He resides in you. And as it says in Acts 7:48, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands. There is not a building that could ever contain the Holy Spirit of God. He is held in the hearts of those who know and love and follow and believe in Jesus. You are the temple. He lives in you. You are the sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. And what we, do, what we do in here is not as important as the spirit with which we do it. it listen, look at me. It doesn't matter what songs we sing. If all they do is come from your lips and not your heart, it's not worship. It doesn't matter. People ask me all the time, well, do y'all do hymns? Yes, we do hymns. They were just written recently because I don't know why we think God stopped inspiring men and women to write music for his glory 100 years ago. I love those hymns. I can sing them, they're written on my heart. But I also think there's a new song that God's putting in people's hearts and we can sing it too. And that's why from time to time we do both. It's not about that. It's about the posture of the heart. And I love all the things that God has blessed us with. I love the technology and all the cool things that our team leverages creatively to present the gospel. But sometimes, we can get so caught up in thinking that the only time we have a good Sunday is when everything goes right and everything goes well and we hit every note and we sing every chord and Matt doesn't say anything crazy, which rarely happens. But one of the coolest moments of worship in the history of our church was unplanned and really unwanted. It was at the middle school, if y'all don't know, we worshiped in the middle school for about five years across the street, set up and tear down every weekend. And one Sunday, a kid in the kids' ministry pulled the fire alarm. Just a few songs into our gathering that day. And what happened outside the back of the gym doors on the lawn was as pure a moment of worship as we've ever had. And luckily in our day and age with people having phones, somebody called it. And I wanna show it to you, and I want you to go ahead, you're, gonna, you're actually gonna hear the fire alarm continue to go off in the background, and it's really loud, so don't freak out, the building's fine here. But I want you just to take a look at one of the most memorable times of worship in the history of our church. How cool is that? 
But one of the most memorable weekends in our church is not when everything went right and everything went well. It's when on the other side of an unwanted thing that happened, people just gathered. They didn't go home. They didn't get in their cars. They just spontaneously began to worship and sing out to God. As I watch that video, and every time the anniversary of that comes up, somebody reposts it. You'll notice I'm nowhere to be found, and I'm not the one holding that phone. I actually missed that entire experience because I was on the other side of the school in a back hallway being mad at God. The night before, Ashley and I had gotten into an argument so bad, I ended up sleeping on the couch that night. And then I had to get up that next morning and come preach. And my head was anywhere but focused on God. And all morning, I was fighting the enemy and guilt and frustration. And God knew it. And when that fire drill was pulled, I ran across the building and was so angry at God. And, just, and I missed one of the most beautiful moments in our church. And I just wonder how many Sundays somebody shows up in that same headspace. And then you wonder why you leave with nothing. You're so consumed with the things that you've done or the things that you've said and you let the enemy leverage that to get you distracted and you walk out of this, walk into this building and you walk right out and you might as well have just been walking down a lonely street because it's not about just being in the room. It's not about the songs. It's not about the lights. It's not about anything else. It's about do you give God the intention of your heart and focus on him and let him do something powerful in you that the crowd is an awesome thing, but whether or not anything happens when we gather in this crowd, it's not up to me, it's not dependent on me, it's not about if we sing the songs you like or not, it's about where is your heart, your mind, if it is focused on God, he will do something. He'll do something. But here's the sad part, so many people, their church experience doesn't move beyond the crowd. They don't, they don't understand that that. that they need to be in a circle as well. That it being in a circle is probably, it might be, I dare say, more important than just sitting in the crowd. But see, Jesus modeled both, and it's not an either and, or either or, it is a both and, that each are a necessary part of being a part of the body, that yes, it's awesome that we get to gather and we need to get to sit in the crowd and worship and do all the things we do every Sunday, but if you never sit in a circle, you're missing out on the opportunity that God provides you in order to be cared for and known and experience relationships that you need that will help you in the hard seasons of life. And the church is supposed to be a place that, that is, allows people to step into those circles and be honest and be transparent and share their struggles. And I know that's not easy. You think it's easy for me to stand up here and tell you I showed up one morning so consumed with a fight I had with my wife, I didn't know how I was gonna preach? Welcome to Venice Church. That we need to sit in a circle as well. That Jesus modeled that, yes, yeah, standing before the crowds is important, but so is sitting in a circle. But I, I understand why we avoid the circle. 
Because in the crowd, you can hide. And that's what so many people do. See, on Sunday morning, it's easy to slip in here. This time of year, there's a lot. We got three gatherings. There's a lot of people. And you come in about five minutes into the first song when it's already dark. And you can, you can slide right on in. You can sit down. Nobody knows you. Nobody knows your story. Nobody knows what's, ha- knows what's happening in your life. And you, and you can give that, that body language. Don't talk to me. Y'all know that vibe. You know, come stop it. Then you stand and you sing and you worship. And then I pray at the end. And you're like, everybody's eyes are closed and that's about. And then slip right on out the door. And you say, I went to church. I checked the box. I sat in the crowd. And you can do that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And then you say, I went to that church for five years. It just didn't do nothing for me. Well, I wonder why. Or what's even funnier is, then you go through something hard in your life. And because you've not let anybody know you or into your life or understand your situation, nobody's there for you. And you say, well, I went through stuff and that church wasn't even there for me. We can't be there for you when we don't know. And we can't know if you don't let us. That's why we avoid the circle. Because the crowd's easy, man. Just slip on in. Throw your little worship frisbees. And then walk on out. And if you're going to really grow in your relationship with Jesus, if you're going to be cared for the way God intended, look at me. It's not the pastor's job to take care of the church. It's the church's job to take care of each other. And when we're willing to sit in a circle and say, yeah, I struggle. I've got sin in my life because I keep giving in to temptation and I need help. Will you call me? Will you sit with me? Will you pray for me? Yeah, my, my dad died and I don't know how to grieve and I need some help. Yeah, my marriage is not great right now and we can't fix it by ourselves. Would you help us? Or even, you know what? It's been a hard time and I don't know how we're gonna pay rent next month. The things that the church is supposed to be for you, but in order for it to be what it's supposed to be, you have to allow it to be that. And that's why it's important to gather. Not just in crowds, but also in circles. Hebrews. Now let me, before I get, look at James 5. James 5, 16. We're reminded, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? So that you'll be healed. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Carry one another's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 was leveraged and misused, I think, quite often. 
when we were going through COVID because people just wanted to use it to be mad. But it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And let us hold to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Then listen, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. I think when the writer of Hebrews was saying, don't neglect gathering together, he wasn't thinking about just what we do on Sunday. I think he was saying, don't, don't neglect like getting together. Yeah, go to church, sit in the crowd, but you know what, don't neglect getting a cup of coffee and looking somebody in the eye and being honest and vulnerable and transparent. Yeah, don't neglect sitting in front of somebody and telling them you don't have it all together. Don't neglect sitting in a living room with a friend and being willing to weep over what you're experiencing in the season that you're in. Don't neglect meeting together. Yes, in the crowd, let's come together every single week and let's stop looking for a reason not to come and find an excuse to be here. And I understand we're not always gonna all be here every weekend. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But man, has it become really easy just to sit at home and watch online. But also, don't neglect the conversations in the lobby, the texts that are meaningful, the home that God's given you to open up let somebody come and sit and be loved on. The gathering of God's people is an important, a valuable part of all of our lives. They made it a priority. Maybe we should too. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather this day. There'll never be another day like it, Lord. Even though so much of every Sunday feels familiar, everyone is unique. And God, I thank you for the, the people of today that are willing to gather. God, I am grateful for those who are watching online, but God, I pray that there, there are people that are disconnected and removed from physical interaction with other believers, that you would just encourage their spirit to find a space to be around people we need. And God, I thank you for the way that you meet with us when your word says where two or three are gathered, that it doesn't have to be a big crowd. But when we gather in your name, focused on your glory, you meet with us in a way that is special and unique. And God, I pray that all of us would be willing to embrace the risk to sit in front of people and to build trust so that transparency might come and so that we can have victory in the areas of our lives that maybe we're struggling with and overcome the hurt and the heartache and the things that life throws at us, God, that things that were meant to happen in the context of community. God, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, we pray.